Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Addicted to Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Shelby. Happy New Year, you guys. Welcome to 2022. Today we're going to be talking about the Fall River cult murders of Doreen Levesque, Barbara Raposa, and Karen Marsden. It's a huge case. There's a ton of information to cover today. I have like 35 pages of notes. And guess what, guys? It's our one-year anniversary of this podcast, which is so exciting. Let's just get into it and dive in. And I'm Katie. We are Podcast by Proxy, a Canadian true crime podcast. Our primary focus is Canadian cases, but sometimes we travel south of the border and love listener suggestions. Join us every Tuesday where we talk about some of the not-so-polite Canadians. You can find us at Podcast by Proxy wherever you listen to your podcasts and on all social media platforms. So his employer eventually finds out about his criminal past, though, and releases him from employment. He gets a job selling hot dogs on Main Street for a while before he lands a permanent job as a salad maker for G&G Foods, and he worked, like, late overnights at this job. So this guy literally tossed salads for a living? Correct. Okay. A murderous (laughs) salad tosser. (laughs) Oh, lordy. Okay, before I begin the episode, I just have a super cool thing to share with you guys. If you've been listening for a while and you've been thinking about becoming a Patreon to support the show, now is your chance. I am giving the first three people to become a Patreon from the date of this recording and from the day it releases on January 9th, 2022, the first three people to join the Patreon at any tier will receive one free t-shirt with our Addicted to Crime logo on it. You heard me right. The first three people to join at any tier get one free t-shirt sent to them from me. All you have to do when you sign up is go ahead and sign up. The link to do that is on our website, which is on the show notes. Otherwise, it's www.addictedtocrime.org and you'll see an option to join the Patreon. Once you're joined, just send me an email with your address and I'll work on sending you that t-shirt. Again, the first three people to join and then that's it. Then it's closed. So hurry on over If you've thought about it for a while and now you're thinking, yeah, sure, this incentive sounds awesome, go ahead, do it. There's lots of free episodes there, free perks, tons of stuff. And if you do it, you'll be supporting the show and you'll get a shout out on that episode. All right, guys, thanks. Before I begin this episode, I just want to open with a brief disclaimer. During the course of this episode, there will be mention of topics that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On October 13, 1979, in Fall River, Massachusetts, a couple women were jogging one cool morning on the outdoor track at Fall River's Diamond Regional Vocational Technical High School. 
I have a little bit of history to share with you about the town of Fall River, Massachusetts. Fall River is in the southwestern part of the state, not that far from Connecticut. It's in Bristol County. Fall River is most famous for the Lizzie Borden true crime case. Lizzie Borden was suspected of killing her family with an axe in Fall River, but after the jury deliberated for only an hour, she was acquitted in court of the charges. Lizzie lived out her life there until June 1st, 1927, under the eyes of her neighbors and those around her, who all basically believed she was guilty. It was huge in history, and you can actually stay in the Borden house in Fall River. It's like a revamped bed and breakfast, and it's said to be haunted by Lizzie and her family members. So that's one super cool fact about this place. According to the neighborhood scout, Fall River isn't a very safe place to live. Um, According to Massachusetts as a whole, they kind of were ranking city by city, and it's the most dangerous next to the Taunton River. Your chances of becoming a victim in Massachusetts is 1 in 330, according to the Neighborhood Scout. But specifically in Fall River, your chances of being the victim of a crime are 1 in 120. Fall River is also very famous for this case that we're going to be talking about today, the Fall River murders, as well as Fall River is the home of the world's largest collection of World War II naval vessels, including the vessel the USS Massachusetts. In the 19th century, Fall River was the leading textile manufacturing center in the U.S. The impact that the textile industry had on Fall River was a mighty one, and it still is evident today in the city's culture and landscape. In the 1960s, the city of Fall River changed when Interstate 195 and the Braga Bridge was constructed. The Kikachan River, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, I'm really sorry, um, was this river was filled in for much of the length. The historic falls were diverted to an underground culvert, and lots of the beautiful historic buildings were sadly torn down in the name of progress. Now, on this fall day in 1979, it was about 7.30 in the morning. The joggers were rounding the bend in the track when they looked by the steel-framed bleachers and saw someone lying underneath. They were thinking this to be totally strange. It's early in the morning. It's cold. Who could be under there? Well, as they walked closer and peered in, they were horrified to realize that there was a small-framed woman lying in a pool of blood, and she was dead. The police were called and arrived on scene immediately. The deceased woman was mostly nude and lying face down on the ground. She was very small, only about 5 feet tall, and she weighed less than 90 pounds soaking wet. When she was discovered, the woman had only a shirt on, and she was nude from the waist down. Now, trigger warning, this is pretty upsetting. In addition to having been beaten, she had a baseball bat shoved up inside of her that was still protruding out of her body when police got there. Her wrists were in front of her, tied with fishing wire, and her ankles were tied as well. Her face was badly, badly beaten and had been smashed in with rocks. Now, one of the rocks that was smashed, uh, that was used to smash her face, was taken into the crime lab to see if they could get some kind of fingerprints off it, but they sadly weren't able to get any fingerprints off of the rock. It didn't look to be too long ago, meaning that probably two or three hours before the joggers were there, this crime took place. Stab wounds were also found in the back of her head in addition to her many, many other injuries. To investigators, it at first looked like a sexually motivated crime. Her being nude from the waist down, um, having her hands and feet tied, the object protruding out of her, it definitely sounds and feels sexually motivated. The Jane Doe's body was then taken to be autopsied and it was taken to the basement of St. Anne's Hospital. Now, I watched a documentary on this case 
that I am going to post in the show notes. It was very, very helpful. I also read a very good book that I'm going to call out later and post in the show notes. But when I was watching this documentary, the investigators were that were witnessing the autopsy were talking about looking around and they were doing this autopsy and they saw a child at the window watching the autopsy happen. And the one officer was like, shoo, go get out of here. And I, that's just a, such a chilling thing to me. Again, not important to the case, but just something that I wanted to include. At this time during the autopsy, they found out the woman the woman had not been sexually assaulted. The autopsy also made it appear to the county medical examiner that she had been intentionally beaten on her face so severely so as to hide her identity, and it also might have been done by more than one killer. The medical examiner was thinking that the way she was killed seemed like a ritualistic killing or torture instead of just a blitz attack out of nowhere. She had been repeatedly beaten with the stones in a just ritualistic manner. From the autopsy, they did a sketch, and from there, they publicized the sketch in an effort to have someone come forward and identify her. Again, a lot of the aspects of this crime and of how the state she was in was left out of the media, just in an effort to have some information to hold for later. In the news, while they included her sketch, like I said, they withheld some information, but the woman's body sadly remained unidentified for another 24 hours before finally being recognized. A witness came forward after recognizing her sketch and reading the description where they detailed what she was wearing and the clothes with her when she was found. The witness was the woman's father, and can you imagine what he must have felt when he was reading the information listed and when he looked at the sketch and made that realization? I just can't imagine. He sadly identified the woman as 17-year-old Doreen Levesque. She was working as a sex worker in Fall River, but she wasn't originally from Fall River. She was from New Bedford. The reason she worked the streets in Fall River instead of New Bedford is she didn't want to run into anyone who knew her back home. Now let's talk a little bit about Doreen Levesque as much as we know anyways. Doreen had originally lived in New Bedford with her parents and six younger siblings. Growing up, she was always self-conscious about her height and being so short, and she would sadly endure teasing and ridicule from bullies while she was in school. To combat this, she would wear high heels 24-7, and because of wearing high heels 24-7, she started to walk in an altered manner such as a strut because of always wearing heels. Doreen wrote poems of despair about a disappointing love, death, and quote, screwed up lives, end quote. Very deep pieces that meant a lot to her. Some of her poetry was read at her funeral, including a letter that she had written to Jesus. It said, Dear Jesus, I hope I spelled your name right. Thank you for everything you've done for me and anything you might do. Someday I would like to be with you in heaven. If I have trouble following you, I'd like for you to help me, end quote. Those who loved her and knew her best described her as a beautiful, kind soul who was a good friend to everyone. Her father didn't alert police when she went missing right away because, as he stated, she would often go out with her friends and stay away for entire nights at a time, so at first he wasn't concerned. Doreen Levesque was buried in a white casket in the mother's satin section of St. John's Cemetery. Excuse me. Sadly, the media didn't focus on her beautiful poetry, her love for nature, her friends, but instead they highlighted other parts. The media constantly spoke on how she engaged with drugs and alcohol on the streets, how she had been arrested for shoplifting, how she had run away from home, dropped out of school twice, and heavily implied that she had been working as a sex worker. Located only four miles away from the local precinct was a stretch of road that was frequented often by sex workers, pimps, and tricks. 
Police were aware of it, but nothing was done, and it often seemed to be overlooked. When the investigation into who killed Doreen Levesque opened up, the senior investigator was Paul Carey, and the two investigators on the case under him were Alan Silvio and Tom Joquim. Also working the case was the Massachusetts State Police and the assistant DA from Bristol County, Pena. Police, when they were investigating this, were repeatedly told that Satan patrolled the streets. Who was that? The police would ask. And all fingers from the informants would point to a man named Carl Drew. Talk to Carl, they would say. Now, Carl Drew was born in New Hampshire and raised in New Hampshire on a farm. His parents were divorced, but they did remain close to each other. On the farm, Carl Drew would say that his dad made him slaughter the animals and that was his job. He said he hated it and it really bothered him at the time. Another chore Carl hated to do was to go down into the slaughter pit where the disgusting stench just permeated the air and to gather all of the hides and hooves from the slaughtered animals and bring them back up for rendering. Carl hated this job. Carl Drew would tell of one instance where one of their horses died by a fire and his dad made him cut up the body with an axe. And when he resisted, his dad started aggressively slapping him, backed him up to the slaughter pit, and in a fit of anger, Carl Drew fell in. As an adult, when police found him in Fall River, he was on the streets and he mainly stayed on Bedford Street. He was working daily as a pimp at the time, recruiting women for sex work. He would force women to work for him and threaten them or their families if they didn't do it. He'd been living on the streets at that time since he was 14 years old. He was a very violent, very aggressive individual, someone you didn't want to cross at all. Honestly, or even look at the right way. He was so aggressive. According to witnesses, he'd drug the girls up and keep them drugged up to use them for jobs on the street. Young runaway girls were his target. Despite his claims that he cared about them and tried to keep them safe, he'd keep them doped up and dependent on him for the drugs so that they'd keep coming back to him and be dependent on him for their fix. And then they'd do the jobs and return some or most of their money to Carl Drew. Again, how did he get away with this for so long? According to him, there were a number of bad cops who'd take advantage of the girls and threaten them with arrest if they wouldn't do tricks for them. So that was another... Like really sad fact about what happened during this time in that area. Another name, in addition to Carl Drew, that was brought up repeatedly was a woman's name, a woman named Robin Murphy. Now, at the time that all this went down, Robin Murphy was trying to work as a pimp in the area, and she often did work with Carl Drew, but they were not friendly to each other. They hated each other, but they did work occasionally together out on the street. Their paths would cross every now and then. Carl Drew had his corner and Robin Murphy had her corner, and they'd both pimp out girls on their corners and collect on their profits. At the time of the murder, Robin was a 17-year-old girl who was very street smart, very tough to the core, who no one wanted to mess with. Her parents didn't really care about her, and she didn't have a stable family life growing up. Her mother was never around, and according to a friend of Robin, her father didn't care about her at all. There was no one watching out for her and no one taking care of her. In turn, she grew up to be a rage-filled, aggressive woman with plenty of trauma in her past. She longed for control and she wanted to take control over her affairs and her life and not listen to anyone or let anyone stand in her way. On January 26, 1980, a man was out walking his beagle. 
They were walking in a big field off the lower end of Route 24 and Jefferson Street in Fall River and the woods behind a printing plant. This business was called the R.E. Smith Company. When they were walking, the beagle (laughs) caught the scent of something unusual. The dog started nosing around in the ground and went to point out a body laying partially covered in the snow. Police were immediately called and arrived on scene. The woman was lying on her back with her hands tied in front of her again with fishing wire. Her hands were above her head as if she died trying to defend herself. Her skull was smashed in and already black from decay. According to an article by the Herald News, quote, Police said that the partly clad body of the girl was attired in a blouse and brassiere, which were in disarray. Other clothing, including a heavy jacket and jeans, were nearby. There were no pocketbook, purse, or any identification on or near the body, end quote. The girl was taken to the St. Anne's Hospital morgue and the state pathologist, Dr. Ambrose Keeley. He would later go on to, be identif- he would later go on to identify her as a missing young girl, Barbara Raposa, who had seemingly vanished. Barbara, at the time of her death, had a four-year-old son named Eric, and she was reported missing by her ex-boyfriend, Andre Maltais. Her current boyfriend was Dave Cowan. Three months before she would be found is when she was reported missing, so she had been missing for three months. As a side note, some sources say that she was 19, and then I read other sources say she was 20, and then I read other sources saying she was 22. So if you notice a discrepancy in her age, that's the explanation for it. Dr. Keeley found pieces of cement embedded in Barbara's face and hair. He also found what he believed to be tooth marks in her face. When examining stomach contents, they found digested crab meat salad sandwich. Now, her boyfriend, Dave Cowan, had told officers that before she disappeared, him and Barbara went to a D'Angelo's to have a sandwich together. After the couple parted the restaurant, Barbara went up the roadways to try and make some money off the street. This was helpful in obviously pinpointing some of her last stops before she was killed, as well as getting a more precise time that she was taken, then murdered. Almost immediately, the Fall River police started to look at Doreen Levesque and Barbara Raposa's murders as connected, since they shared some pretty strong similarities. Both victims were young sex workers, both victims were found with their shirts on but no bottoms, and both were tied at the wrists with fishing wire. Andre Maltais was almost immediately considered a suspect by Fall River Police. He was the victim's ex-boyfriend, and as a side note, I read an article that said a better way to describe him was a statutory rapist, so just keep that in mind. Now, the ex-boyfriend, as I'm sure you guys listening know, is someone that investigators almost always look at first, and importantly, he was the last one that said he saw her alive. Andy Maltias at the time was a 44-year-old man who the police were already well aware of. He was a convicted pedophile and a very aggressive and abusive man. He continually preyed on underage sex workers and took advantage of them. He claimed to be the father of Barbara Raposa's child, but I haven't found anything to verify yet, so I'm not going to say that he was. One interesting thing to note is that he's said to have reportedly been a boyfriend of Robin Murphy at some point or another, and allegedly molested her when she was only 11 years old, repeatedly taking advantage of her. He was taken in to be interrogated for Barbara's murder, and as he walked in, he said he used to be with Satan, but now he was with God, and he was a born-again Christian. 
This seemed odd to the police that he would start off his questioning this way. But as they brought him in and started talking with him, he decided he didn't want to talk to the Fall River Police. He only wanted to talk to the Crime Prevention and Control Unit of the Massachusetts State Police. He said that he had done some undercover work for them and was told to only talk to them, not to the Fall River Police. The state police officer in charge of the Levesque homicide investigation was veteran Detective Corporal Paul Fitzgerald, who worked on the Bristol County Crime Prevention and Control Unit. Paul Fitzgerald was familiar with Andre Maltius because Andy had placed calls the previous year in October 1979 to the state police. The calls he had placed were a few weeks after Doreen Levesque's body was found, and on the messages, he told them that he knew something about her murder, and he wanted to meet with the investigator in charge in the case. Now, like I said, he was well-known with the police already. They knew he was not good news, but at the time, he was one of the only leads that they had. When he finally met with investigators, he talked about everything under the sun, but nothing about the case. You know, there's people who just seem to talk and talk and talk, but never actually say anything. Yeah, he was described like that. When he was finally pressed about why he called the meeting and what he knew, he said he knew nothing, but that he knew two women who did know something about what happened. Andy told Fitzgerald that he would arrange a meeting with him and the two girls. A week after this, Andy got back in touch with Fitzgerald, saying the girls were ready to talk. He brought Fitzgerald to a donut shop where he said the girls were waiting. The two girls got in the car with them when they parked, and Fitzgerald and Andy brought them back to the station. The older girl's name was 20-year-old Karen Marsden, and the younger girl's name was 17-year-old Robin Murphy. A nervous Karen blurted out that Carl Drew killed Doreen Levesque, and she could say how she knew, but she wouldn't. She couldn't. She was too afraid. While she made this accusation, Robin Murphy just sat in silence, seeming to just soak it all in. When asked how they knew Carl Drew, Karen said that he was her former pimp, and Robin said she knew him from when she was working on the street. The girls told a little bit about themselves when they were asked. Karen lived with her grandmother and had a two-year-old son named JJ that lived with a foster family there in Fall River. Robin Murphy told them that she used to work on the streets, but that she didn't do it anymore, and now lived in Harbor Terrence. The girls didn't tell them anymore, and as they were leaving, Karen turned to Paul Fitzgerald and said, quote, If you find me dead, Carl Drew did it, end quote. Fitzgerald begged her to tell them more so that she could get some kind of protection, but both girls went back to the car, and he drove them back to where they had picked them up at the donut shop. This was not the last time Fitzgerald heard from Karen Marsden. She became his informant. She would repeatedly call, telling him about her fear of Carl Drew and that he might do something to her, but he w she would never really elaborate more than that or share any more details. A few weeks later, a woman named Carol Fletcher called the Fall River Police Department, telling them that a friend of hers wanted to share what she knew about Barbara Raposa's murder, but she was terrified of police and very anxious about coming in. This woman, who Carol Fletcher was talking about, was Karen Marsden. At this time, it doesn't seem like the Fall River Police knew that the state police had been talking with Karen about Doreen Levesque, and she didn't know, they didn't know that she was one of the key witnesses. So it kind of seems to me like the two different police departments didn't share information well with each other, at least in the beginning. 
At 6 p.m. that evening, Alan Silva of the Fall River Police went to Carol Fletcher's apartment to meet with Karen Marsden. Carol's apartment was on County Street. Carol didn't tell Karen that she brought Sylvia there to talk. So when Karen entered Carol's house, she was at first horrified and freaked out at seeing him sitting there and she didn't want to talk to him at all. Carol, however, convinced Karen to, despite Karen crying that Robin was going to kill her if she found out who she was talking to. Interesting, right? Why would Robin not want Karen talking with police? Well, investigators helped reassuring her that they could keep her safe, and she shouted back, quote, Help me nothing. Help them fill my veins with battery acid and leave me in the green water. Help them to kill JJ. What help? End quote. Obviously terrified for her son's life and her life, just not wanting to talk at all, not wanting to risk what could happen. The other girls at Carol's home kept reassuring her that the officers were only there to help find out what happened to the two girls, but Karen kept repeating that Robin and Carl were going to kill her and kill her son, JJ. Karen kept referring to Carl as the devil. When asked about the green water, Karen told them that a few months ago, Robin drove her and Carol to the Freetown Forest, also known as the Freetown Reservation or the Fall River State Forest, they go by different names, and parked in a seemingly random spot. Karen told them that it was at this spot that Robin told her and Carol that Carl Drew was planning on killing the two of them and were planning on offering their souls up to Satan at this spot for an offering and were going to inject their bodies with battery acid and dump their bodies alongside the road, obviously threatening them, obviously not pleased that they had been talking with police. Sylvia and the other investigator, Joe Grimm, convinced Karen to take them to the spot in the forest that she was referring to. Now, Karen ditched, but she couldn't find the exact spot in the dark, and the investigators told her that they would come back to look at it again in the daylight. Karen never told them that she'd been meeting with the state police and had dropped Carl's name in the investigation into Doreen Levesque with them. Meanwhile, Andy Maltese kept calling Officer Fitzgerald of the state police and repeatedly kept reiterating that he knew something, but that he couldn't or wouldn't tell them. And he repeatedly kept checking in on the status of their investigation. He 100% inserted himself right in the middle, as most uh, perpetrators seem to do. They just can't keep their hands off of the case that they were involved in. Finally, one day, Andy called Fitzgerald telling them that he had had a dream. And he finally remembered what happened to Barbara in this dream. Fitzgerald first called the Fall River Police asking if they wanted in on the interview. So Alan Silva and Tom Jokim from the Fall River Police Force went too. Detective Lieutenant Tom Cagle and Tony Correa from the Fall Office, well, <laughs> from the Fall River Police Department also went in a separate car, as well as D- District Attorney Pena. When they got to the meetup place with Maltias, he was read his rights, but he still decided to talk. The district attorney, Pena, led the questioning, and Andy told them through rushed, rapid breathing that in his dream, he was floating upward, and then he was watching in a tree in the forest behind a printing plant. And he said in this quote-unquote dream, he saw someone in a leather jacket beating Barbara in the face with a rock. The investigators handed him a copy of a newspaper clipping image of the field that Barbara was found in and asked him to mark an X where he was when it happened. He placed the X. Then he was prompted to put an O next to where the crime took place. 
the O was placed. The O was in the exact spot that the body was found and the X was ever so slightly to the right of where the crime took place. The newspaper clipping image was taken after Barbara's body was taken away, so there's no way that he could have gotten it from then. There's no way he could have gotten it exactly right unless he was there or unless he knew precisely where it took place, precisely where it happened. However, Andy kept insisting he had never been there in person before, only in this dream, only in this out-of-body psychic experience. He went back to describe the man he saw beating Barbara as a tallish man, heavy set. Andy said he couldn't tell anything more about the person, but said that Barbara called out to him, quote, Andy, help me stop, end quote. And that's when he realized it was Barbara being beaten to death. Andy Maltias then dropped a very important clue and said that he wondered if the reason for the murder was because of a love affair. That maybe Barbara had double-crossed one of her lovers or someone didn't like her and ended up dead because of it. Andy said he didn't sense that the man beating Barbara loved her or formerly loved her, but he sensed that he had a deep hatred for her. Andy Maltias told them that he wanted to go to the crime scene in person to see if he could help further, uh, help the investigation further and maybe jog his memory some more. And they obliged. They weren't going to, I mean, say no. Like, this guy is kind of just digging himself a deeper hole, right? Just let him talk. On the way to the crime scene, Maltias made two comments saying, quote, I know they've got me now, end quote, which Officer Silva thought was very interesting. At the scene, Andy Maltias reiterated his story he said before and also said that the man got her out of the car trunk where she was tied up and high on drugs and brought her to the spot on the ground. According to Andy Maltias, she said, quote, Andy, forgive me, end quote, numerous, numerous times. Andy pointed out where it happened and the tree that he was, heavy air quotes, you know, floating in. He said that the man beating her had a mustache. Andy turned to officers and said, quote, the devil's got the best of her. I hope she goes to heaven, end quote. Which, you know, what an interesting comment to make, especially when he knows the investigators are right there. And it's the second time that the investigators heard the devil get brought up in this case. The first time being from Karen Marsden. Andy Maltias also said that maybe there had been a man and a woman nearby during the killing, but he couldn't be sure. Maltias also said that the murder weapon was a square rock and then walked to some of the concrete blocks sitting there and said, quote, it might have been a piece of concrete, end quote, which ding, ding, ding. We know that was mostly the murder weapon due to the size of the injury on her head, as well as the concrete found in her skull and hair. On February 9th, 1980, Robin Murphy made a statement about the night of Barbara Raposa's death, putting herself there as well. Her statement was taken down by Detective Roger St. Pierre and Joe Philam, and it says, quote, Robin Murphy stated that on November 7th, 1979, between the hours of 11 and 1, while in the Mahogany Cafe located on Pleasant and Flint Streets, she called Andy Maltias at his home and asked him for a ride to her mother's home located at blank address in Fall River. During the telephone conversation, Andy told her he had just received a call from Barbara asking him to pick her up at Sambo's dinner on Pleasant Street. A short time later, Andy picked up Robin at the corner of Flint and Pleasant Street and proceeded to Sambo's. En route to Sambo's, Andy made the statement, quote, I'm going to kill that Barbara for going out with that David Cohen, end quote. 
Robin stated that when she w- she and Andy reached Sambo's, she jumped into the back seat upon the request of Andy, allowing Barbara to get into the front seat. An argument began with Robin as to what Robin was doing in the car with Andy. It continued until they reached the intersection of Jefferson Street and Brayton Avenue, at which time Barbara turned and punched Robin in the face. In return, Robin grabbed Barbara by the hair and neck, pulling her into the back seat. They continued to fight while Andy proceeded south on Jefferson Street. At one time during the fight, Robin remembers biting Barbara somewhere on the breast. The car suddenly made an abrupt left turn, causing both Barbara and Robin to be thrown against the right-hand rear door. A short distance after the turn, the car came to a complete stop. Andy got out of the car and opened the rear door and pulled Barbara off of Robin and restrained Barbara outside of the vehicle. Robin stated that she heard Barbara and Andy talking outside, but she could not hear what they were saying. Barbara began to then calm down. Andy released Barbara and went to the rear of the car. He opened the trunk and removed a brown paper bag. Robin described the bag as containing Andy's gadgets, such as a rubber penis and stuff like that. Barbara and Andy walked a short distance from the car. Barbara removed her coat and placed it on the ground. She also removed her jeans. Barbara then lay on the ground in the area where she had put her coat and Andy lay on top of her. We asked Robin if Barbara's brouse or bra had been removed, and Robin said no because it was cold out that night. A short time later, Robin said she heard what sounded like an argument between Andy and Barbara. She saw Andy beating Barbara with his fist. Robin turned her head away. Upon hearing a scream, she turned back. Andy was sitting on top of Barbara with his two hands raised, holding a rock over Barbara. Robin then said she saw Andy come down with the rock in the approximate area where Barbara's head would have been. Andy then got up and put the gadgets back in the bag. He looked down at Barbara and said, quote, let's see you crawl home from here, end quote. Andy then placed the bag back in the trunk, got back into the car, and drove off. He asked Robin where she wanted to go, and Robin told him to please take her to her mother's home. She was so scared she could not recall any more of the conversation, end quote. On November 8th, 1979, in the morning hours, Robin received a call from Andy. Andy asked, what happened to Barbara? Robin answered, I don't know. Robin stated that on several occasions, Andy had dated different girls and had hurt them. Each time he would call Robin the following morning, asking her how whatever girl he had dated the night before was. On each occasion, Robin would answer the same. I don't know. Robin Murphy also went with a detective to this area and was able to tell them exactly where the crime took place and where the bodies had been found, which the general public did not know, end quote. Of course, after this, Andy Maltese is arrested for the murder of Barbara Raposa. He was ordered to be held without bail, then sent to the Barnstable County House of Corrections in Cape Cod, pending a psyche bail. Andy Maltese was arraigned on February 8, 1980. Meanwhile, Sylvia couldn't shake the feeling that Karen Marsden knew more than she was sharing. They met with her several more times, but none of the meetings they had, she really shared anything more. They would beg her to share what she knew, stating that, you know, they could put her in a safe home, they could give her protective custody, but she just wasn't buying it. She said, quote, it doesn't matter. The devil is going to kill me. I told you a hundred times, end quote. She then told them that she wanted to see a priest. 
When they pressed her again and told her again that they'd protect her, she said, quote, because the life I've got is the life I've got. I have a little boy, JJ. I have a grandmother. I have a mother and a father. I have friends. You can't put everyone I know in protective custody. You can't put Bedford Street in protective custody, end quote. So after Karen repeatedly kept asking to see a priest, the officers dropped Karen Marsden off at the St. Mary's Church, and they watched her walk up the church steps. They watched her ring the doorbell, and then they drove away. The next day, Robin Murphy called detectives and told them something about the Barbara Raposa case. She had something about that case on her mind. She needed to talk to them about it. They agreed to meet with her and drove to a woman named Sunny Sparta's home in Harbor Terrence. Now, Sunny Sparta's real name is Maureen Sparta, but she went by Sunny, so I'm going to call her Sunny in this episode. Sunny was a tough woman who watched out for the sex workers or young runaways when they needed a safe place and a place to sleep. Sunny Sparta and Robin Murphy were alleged lovers or former lovers or current. I couldn't really tell during this research. They, I'm pretty sure they were current lovers at the time, and they were often hanging out together. It was at this meeting place that Robin Murphy told them, you know, that she was there with um, Andy Maltias, and she told him that whole story that I already read to you, but she did tell that story at Sunny's home. Later that day, detectives received another phone call. This call was from a worried elderly woman calling them, stating that her granddaughter had not yet returned home to her and she was getting worried. When asked to provide details, the woman said that her daughter was that her granddaughter was Karen Marsden. Karen had not returned home yet to her son, and it was very unlike her as she was a good mother. Detectives immediately felt a pit in their stomach. Karen had been living in fear for weeks worried that since she'd been talking with police, that something was going to happen to her. Specifically naming Carl Drew as the devil and someone she was scared of, and also specifically naming Robin Murphy as someone who would kill her if if she knew she was talking. The grandmother stated that the last time she saw Karen was 3 p.m. Friday afternoon. The next day between 9 and 10 in the morning, she said she received a call from a woman, a a friend of Karen's, saying that Karen and her had made plans the night before, but she never showed. Where was she? The friend was just calling to see if Karen was okay. The woman identified herself to her grandmother as Robin Murphy. The grandmother mentioned more helpful information to police. She said that she overheard her granddaughter talking about Carl Drew at one point. Carl Drew was allegedly going around telling the girls not to talk to police about the Doreen Levesque murder. Again, another tie to the Barbara case. And Carl Drew was getting upset when he found out that some girls had been talking. The grandmother mentioned hearing some of friends of Karen's, another friend, Carol Fletcher, going to have a beating or receive a beating from Carl Drew for talking to police. And the grandmother just expressed how she was really nervous that her daughter was, you know, wrapped up in these very aggressive people, and it just didn't sit right with her. Police pretty early on realized that Karen, you know, she didn't just disappear. Something more sinister happened to her. She was probably dead, so the investigation quickly turned into a suspected homicide investigation. Officers started canvassing the area. They wanted to see who talked to Karen last, who saw her last. The more friends of Karen's they ran into and questioned, the more they kept hearing the same thing. Carl Drew. Carl Drew. He had made frets. She was very afraid of him. He had supposedly told her that if she talked to police, she would end up like Doreen. When they talked with Robin Murphy and asked her when she saw Karen last, she said the last time was Friday. 
The two of them were traveling from St. Anne's to the hub when a guy pulled up and offered them a ride. Now, remember, this little story is according to Robin Murphy about the last time she saw Karen. This guy pulled up and offered them a ride. Robin rode with the man and Karen, and she got off near government center while Karen and the man continued on all the way to the hub. According to the book, Mortal Remains, the hub was a pool hall, and that was located on Pleasant Street at the corner of 6th Street. It was a usual route for sex workers to work to pick up tricks, especially on a Friday night. It was a very common place to be for them at the time. Robin said that she went to Sunny's while Karen went with this man, and she hadn't heard from her since. Robin said that they had made plans to meet later, but Karen was a no-show. Robin told them, shockingly, that she thinks Karen is dead because she wouldn't do this. She especially wouldn't leave her son. That was really kind of shocking to detectives because they really didn't say anything about, you know, her being dead. Robin kind of just offered up that information as a possibility. The next step detectives made was Sunny's apartment, and she seemed to obviously know they were coming. And it was confirmed later when Sunny told them that Robin actually called told her that they'd be coming to her next and also Robin told Sunny not to talk to them. Sunny dropped a hint at that time. She told them that she thought Robin had something to do with Karen's disappearance and she said that Robin was dangerous. She believed Robin to be very dangerous. The detectives next went to get Carl Drew and bring him back to the station for questioning. His name had been dropped one too many times and they wanted answers from him. Carl Drew told them that he saw Karen on Friday night. Carol was in the back seat of the car with Carol Fletcher and Robin Murphy in the front seat. Carl Drew stated that he that was the last time he saw her. The investigators took samples of Carl Drew's hair. They looked and took photographs of his chest and wrists. And they took a photograph of the tattoos he had on his chest. He had a tattoo of Satan. He had a tattoo of the word hate on his fingers on his one hand. And he had another tattoo that said Satan's Avengers on his left forearm. They then asked Carl to drop his pants, which he eventually did. And they took photographs of the large red welts on his knees that Carl Drew said was from having sex on a rug or a mat. The next day, the state police picked up Robin Murphy and put her in a hotel. She was going to be a witness for them. She needed to be placed in protective custody. Now, if you're a little confused (laughs) by the events of this investigation man you are not alone the entire time I was reading and researching this case and watching the documentary reading the book Robin Murphy just left a bad taste in my mouth many people were afraid of her her name kept getting dropped almost as often as Carl Drew's name kept getting dropped and she was always quick to put the blame and the spotlight on Carl Drew look at Carl Drew don't look at me so when I read that she was going to be held as a possible witness for the state and needed to be under protection that stood out to me that they wanted her for a star witness, not a potential suspect. But then I had to realize the state police thought Robin would be a witness, whereas the Fall River police were leaning more towards her being a suspect at the time. Before they could arrest Carl Drew, they had to find a body. They had to find Karen. When talking with Carol Fletcher, she described to them that she saw Karen on Friday night at 8.30 in the hub pool room, you know, which lines up with Karen's story, before she left with the trick. She describes the trick's car as a light green Plymouth duster and the trick as a middle-aged Portuguese guy, white with shoulder-length hair, a round face, and blue, or excuse me, and brown eyes. Carol said she saw him well enough that she would be able to recognize a photo of him if she was showed one. She also said that she saw Carl Drew later at the pier that night and 
Carla told her that no one was going to give his name to the police anymore. Later, we hear an inconsistency from Sunny, and that was Robin was the one who canceled the date with Karen. And when Robin later arrived back at Sunny's apartment, she seemed tired, out of breath, like she had been running that day. And Sunny asked her, you know, what's going on? Where, where were you? But she didn't tell her. Detectives had more people to interview. They called Karen Marston's mother, Nancy Marston. And as she was talking with them when she was interviewed, she said that although she hadn't, she couldn't even remember the last time she saw Karen last, Nancy Marston remembered finding out that someone had taken out a hit on her daughter. Officers received a telephone tip from a woman, and this woman said that Robin killed Karen in an abandoned building somewhere. She wasn't sure where, but that she'd been aware of this by a vision, and she'd also been made aware that Robin would eventually confess to this with a proper psychiatric help. Officers had kept hearing talk about the devil, they kept hearing talk about devil worship, and most of the talk centered around the Freetown Forest. That's where it seemed that Carl Drew conducted some of his meetings as well as in some of his followers' apartments. Carl Drew used the devil. He used talks of Satan and his wrath and the vengeance as a fear tactic to keep his followers in line and fearful of double-crossing him. Did Carl believe his own satanic teachings of Satan? You know, maybe, but maybe he was just using them to scare the girls and to scare his followers into submission. That seems more likely. Whatever the case was, whether or not he believed the stuff he was spewing or if he was just spewing it to confuse the girls and scare the girls, whether or not that was the case, it worked. He had conducted this cult-like, satanic cult-like atmosphere where these girls lived in constant fear that they would get punished by Satan if they went against what Carl Drew said. He had his followers living in absolute fear, and the words that came out of his mouth to them were gold, was truth. They had to believe him. Otherwise, they would get punished, basically, for it. Satan would punish them. Officers would search the Freetown Forest, and during one of these searches, Tom Jokim saw something in the woods with two other detectives that he thought was quite disturbing. There in the woods was a huge stack of very heavy rocks. There were two steps going upward and then a top area rock apart above it. And to the detectives, it looked like a man-made altar. They made note of it. And um, when the media caught wind of it, again, that sends the talk about a satanic cult offering sacrifices in this forest up in a frenzy. So everyone just freaked out when they made note of that. Carol Fletcher met with officers again and said that Friday night, the last night people saw Karen, she did leave with a man in a duster, confirming what Robin told them, but she also had a little change of story. Carol said that Karen came back with the man. Carol said that Karen was waved down by two white men around six foot one or six foot two and led these two men, each holding an arm to Karen, each holding one of Karen's arms. The men led her into their vehicle. Carol said that this vehicle was a dark green car and then they drove off. Carol said that she had seen these two men previously at Sunny's house and knew that they were acquaintances of Carl Drew. Carol also told them something astonishing. She said when she was on the street the other night, she asked Carl Drew where he thought Karen's body might be, and he responded almost immediately with, quote, a graveyard in Asinette, end quote. Carol then named Carl Drew as having killed Karen and said, quote, other people are involved too. Robin is involved. It was Robin who sent her to the pool room, end quote. 
In the searches in the Freetown Forest, what remained of a burned car was found. It was basically just a scarred skeleton, or a charred, excuse me, skeleton of a car. The car was found to have been stolen February 6th. This was only two days before Karen had disappeared, and it was a dark green car. Carol Fletcher was then offered police protection, but she denied it. More and more girls were finally starting to talk with investigators. A woman named Terry told detectives that Robin had told her that she killed Karen Marsden, and the reason she gave was that Karen kept accusing Robin of cheating on her, and finally, Robin just grew tired of it, and she couldn't take it anymore, and she was going to take Karen out of the question. An acquaintance of Sunny Sparta told investigators that Robin said that she was there when Doreen Levesque was killed, and she was there and saw the entire thing. At this time, the Fall River Police had Robin Murphy in their grasp, and they decided to keep eyes on her 24-7. Meanwhile, the state was still going to use Robin as a key witness for them for Barbara Pose's murder, with the charges bringing, being against Andy Maltese. Robin told them that since Barbara was seeing David Cohen, that Andy Maltese was jealous and angry with her that she had moved on, and that he told others he was going to kill her. He often spoke about that, she said. Through more questioning, Robin told detectives that Andy Maltese beat her and sexually abused her when she was 11 and that no one would stop it, which is just horrific. And I know the documentary does touch on this as well. April 13th, a man named Brian Field called the fire chief of Westport, Massachusetts and told him that he found something near the Devol Pond as he was removing some brush. You know, just something, something chill. Yeah, he found a skull. And when they came out to confirm that it actually was a skull and actually was a human skull, they noticed that the teeth were missing and that the only thing visible was the top of the skull, but nothing remained below the eye orbits. So it was only the top of the skull. When police came out and the Bristol County Medical Examiner, Paul DeVillers, looked at the skull, he confirmed it to be human. He said that the skull had been there in the elements eight weeks, give or take. Also found near the skull was a sock, blue jeans, inside out like it was taken off in a hurry, a woman's shoe and underwear, a jacket, and a light blue sweater, and also found was a dark blue turtleneck. Inside the sweater, that also looked like it had been taken off in a hurry, they found in one of the sleeves a silver Gruen watch that was no longer ticking. They also found human skin and hair as well. The skull was later confirmed to belong to Karen Marsden, and they found this out by comparing the skull to x-rays taken of her head when she went to the hospital for a sinus headache. There were some tough relations at this time between the state police and the Fall River police when it comes to sharing information with each other. The state police had taken Robin Murphy out of the area under protection for this key witness in the state's case against Maltese, but the Fall River Police was more apt to think that she was involved in Karen and Doreen's case, if not Barbara's too. They needed to question her. Sunny Sparta told Fall River detectives that Robin Murphy killed Karen Marsden because she wanted to be with her. She said she did it because of some twisted love triangle situation. When the state police heard all of this and they read the reports from the Fall River police, they kind of had like a change of heart. They were shocked and told Robin, you know, who was out of state, hiding out under their protection, to come back to Massachusetts. They didn't really say much. They didn't want to spook her, but they said, you know, come back. We, we just have a couple more questions. We need you back over here. Carol Fletcher came back around with the story for investigators again. She told him that that night on February 8th, Carl Drew, Carl Davis, Robin Murphy, Karen Marsden, and herself were in a car and they drove to West Point where Carl Drew and Robin Murphy 
killed Karen. So the night that Karen was taken to the Freetown Forest, is and that's the place where she died. Meanwhile, an autopsy was done on the partial skull that was found near the pond. An x-ray was looked at while the person was still alive and compared to the skull found. Robin Murphy seemed to have a change of heart at this time, and she decided, you know what, I'm just going to tell detectives everything. Remember, this account is according to Robin Murphy. Now, Robin said that she was in a car with Carl Drew that night and another man named Willie. In her story of this, Carol Fletcher was there. But in the second story of this, Carol Fletcher was not there. Again, you have to take this with a grain of salt because this is Robin Murphy's account. We know she is known to leave some details out and she is known to change some things. So they were driving when they saw Doreen Levesque standing on 9th Street. So Robin knows all this is happening with Karen. They know that police, she knows that police found a skull. She knows that she's going to be this witness for Barbara Raposa, but she's like, you know what? I got to tell them about Doreen Levesque. They were all driving. They saw Levesque standing on 9th Street before asking her to get in the car with them and smoke a joint. Doreen got in the back seat next to Willie and the vehicle drove off. The group asked Doreen if she was working for anyone, basically asking her who her pimp was. And Doreen told them that, you know, she wasn't working for anyone, that she liked the freedom of being able to work by herself. Well, this particular piece of information got Carl Drew very angry. And he said that he couldn't, uh, that she couldn't afford to work by herself. And then when Doreen agreed, he, she, he reached back and slapped her in the face with the back of his hand, like literally while he's driving. Doreen started to cry, but she didn't say anything more and just seemed to listen to Carl Drew. He again asked her to work for him, to which she refused at this point, looking absolutely terrified, and I can only imagine just trying to get out of the car. Carl Drew kept driving until they were at the Diamond Vocational Technical High School, where he parked the car by the bleachers. When the car was parked, Doreen was told to get out, but when she refused, Willie and Carl drug her out by her hair and carried her struggling out to the under the bleachers. They were gone for about 10 minutes, and then the two men returned to the vehicle. Robin said, had said at this time that she stayed in the car. When Robin asked what happened, Carl Drew reportedly told her, quote, you really don't want to know, end quote. When questioned, Robin denied having anything to do herself with during Levesque's death. All she was guilty of, she said, is that she was there. Now, on May 8th, a warrant is finally obtained, and it charged Robin Murphy with the murder of Karen Marsden on or about February 8th, 1980. Robin was arrested by state police and taken to the New Bedford Police Department until the next morning when the Bristol County Grand Jury returned indictments against her, Carl Drew, and Carl Davis. Drew and Robin were then arraigned to the Bristol County Superior Court. Both of them pled not guilty and they were denied bail. A judge ordered Robin Murphy to be evaluated to make sure that she was competent enough to stand trial. And 24-year-old Carl Davis was also being held without bail. Now, a woman was interviewed and she identified herself as Leah Johnson, a sex worker who worked for Carl Drew. And it kind of seemed like she was Carl Drew's girlfriend. Now, when they were talking with her, they remarked about her beautiful diamond ring on her left hand. It's beautiful. Where'd you get it? She said sheepishly that, you know, Carl Drew gave it to her. But later, when Sunny Sparta saw the ring or saw a picture of the ring, Sunny told them that it belonged to Karen. It was Karen's ring that Carl took and gave to Leah Johnson. 
Later, when a warrant was obtained for the ring, Leah surrendered it to the police. A friend of Karen's positively, positively identified it as belonging to Karen. The friend said that Karen wore it all the time. It was one of her favorite pieces of jewelry, one of her only pieces of jewelry. Leah Johnson would later have a change of heart and tell officers that Carl Drew had confessed to her how he and three other people took Karen into the woods of West Point and slaughtered her. When we talk about the state of panic that occurred for the people at this time in the 80s in America, we need to look at where the satanic panic first began. So let's take a break from talking about the events of the case and talk about the satanic panic. Looking at history, one would assume that the satanic panic began around the Salem witch trials, and and one would be right. (laughs) Between February 1692 and May 1693, in Salem, Massachusetts, over 200 people were accused of witchcraft and being associated with the devil. Out of all of these accused, 30 were found guilty, and 19 of these individuals were executed by hanging. 14 of them are women, and 5 were men. How did this come about? Well, through a a variety of different methods. Church politics was one. Uh, Feuds between families or feuds between neighbors was another. Hysterical children was one. And also boredom. Also, historians believe that there was a medical issue going around at the time, such as maybe asthma, Lyme disease, epilepsy, or encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain. And that could have been some of the causes to make individuals stand out with their bizarre behavior from this. And therefore, have someone look at them and be like, oh, wow, they're acting weird. They must be a witch. But in reality, they were just suffering from an unknown at the time disease. Why were witches hunted? Well, it was believed back then that witches were slaves to Satan and were devout followers of his. They were thought to have demons do magical things for them, for favors. And so how did people identify such people? How how could you tell who was a witch? First, someone had to make an accusation. It could come from anyone at any time. Literally, no one was safe during this time, especially if you were a woman. If you're a woman, look out. If you had red hair, look out. That was another big one. If you like to talk a lot and you were known by some people as being outspoken or like a gossip, you better look out because you're going to be accused of being a witch. Once someone was accused, then they would be tried. And if convicted, which most of the time they were, then they were publicly executed or else, you know, banished at times too. Or else also they could have been imprisoned. Now, the, the, the thing to think about when, when you're thinking about this is fear. If all of the Salem witch trials can be summed up in one word, it, the word would be fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of something unchristian, fear of something new, fear of not having the control over someone. Any of these can describe what that climate was like in Salem. Decades later, there's a book written called Michelle Remembers. And this book made claims that a practice called recovered memory therapy was making discoveries of satanic ritual abuse involving children. None, nothing at the time corroborated this. There was no evidence given, but that didn't matter to people. It just added to the panic. And this is where the phrase satanic ritual abuse kind of first comes into the modern day. The practice of recovered memory therapy is now discredited and is not used anymore. But the book, Michelle Remembers, features a psychiatrist in British Columbia who treats a patient that has an underlying trauma. And to treat her, he uses a recovered memory therapy and hypnosis. The psychiatrist discovers childhood trauma and abuse that's linked to satanic rituals performed by the patient's mother. The author claims in the book that the Church of Satan is responsible for this. 
Now, it's important to note that the Church of Satan later, later threatens them with libel, so that then the author backtracks and takes that out. It's just important to note. This book led to worldwide fame and even had a film made about it. The world soaked this up like a sponge. Later, when it actually started to get picked apart, the author then redacted some things. Deep investigative dives into the patient found nothing matching up with what the author claimed, nothing being corroborated. Basically, this book was proven false after it was marketed as true and redacted almost entirely, but not before the damage was already done. Other events adding to the hysteria of this time takes us to a preschool. Yes, you heard me right, a preschool. The McMartin preschool case in Manhattan Beach, California, involved accusations brought against daycare providers that they kidnapped and flew children to a location where they engaged in sexual acts and forced them to watch disturbing acts such as the torture and killing of animals and even child abuse and forcing children to engage in these twisted religious rituals. It's really just all just so disgusting. The accusation came from one woman, a mother, and she was later found out to have a case of paranoid schizophrenic. Now, of this accusation, more came forward, and as a result of that, seven teachers were arrested and charged. Now, obviously, this was a media frenzy. The idea that teachers are using the children for a satanic ritual abuse that fear and that pandemonium went worldwide and caused an extreme panic. This case was also highly controversial because of the methods for which the children were interviewed, lending many to believe that the children were told to say things by strong suggestions from law enforcement. Now, you can read more about the McMartin Preschool if you're curious about it and the outcome. I really didn't want to spend too much time on it. I just wanted to share a little bit because it was influential in the start of the satanic panic. Serial killers and their gruesome, sick crimes were also easy targets for people claiming Satan was involved. It was easier for some to say that the horrific murders were done as a pledge to Satan rather than just the act of a depraved, evil person wanting to do evil. And the narrative that Satan did it was easier to sell paper. That was easier to sell newspaper and make money. The media thrived on fear, and it still does, honestly. Nothing's changed much today. And the media really sold the satanic panic idea really hard. So back to Fall River, when women started turning up dead and there was talks and rumors of this makeshift altar used for sacrifice, when there was talks of this ritualistic killing by stoning to death, when there were talks of Carl Drew having all these meetings in the forest and having these meetings in his followers' home, then yeah, that stirred everyone up for miles, thinking that there was these just devil worshippers running loose in the Freetown forest. Now, the forest had countless of stories about it. L women and children were lured to the forest, sacrificed to Satan as a reminder to stay out of the woods, you know, be good kids, be respectable, stay away from these seedy places and the devil won't get you, stuff like that. So this was already had a name for it before all of this happened. Let's get back to the case and get back to where we left off. Carl Drew, Carl Davis, Robin Murphy, they're all facing a trial for the same crime. They all three appeared in court to file different motions. Carl Davis's attorney wanted the court to set a bail so Carl Davis could be freed until the trial, but that motion was denied. Carl Drew had been requesting to get out on bail also, but that had been reportedly declined. His lawyer was asking for him to be able to take a polygraph test in connection to Karen Marsden's murder. 
He wanted to prove that he had nothing to do with it by taking this polygraph test. A judge did warn him, though, that although, you know, it's not super accurate and if somehow it came back as he wasn't telling any lies, this is true, yeah, it would be good for him. Same time, it's not always submissible in court. He also said that if it came back as negative, that wouldn't look good for him and it would ruin his chances of getting off. But Carl Drew, he accepted these risks and he still asked to take a polygraph and that request was approved. Robin Murphy's attorney, Kenneth Sullivan, petitioned the court to give Robin a more extensive psychiatric exam and also spoke about needing help finding people to speak on her behalf as a witness. No one was coming to bat for Robin Murphy. When everything was starting to proceed to trial, Robin Murphy again changes her story. She said that when Willie and Carl drug Lorene Levesque from the car, there was also another person in the car, not just her. She said Karen Marsden was there as well. When Robin Murphy was asked how she pleaded to the case, or excuse me, to the charge of the murder of Karen Marsden, she said she would plead not guilty by reason of insanity. This plea of insanity was later pulled, though, as her lawyer said she showed no signs of being insane. Robin made a plea to get a separate trial from Carl Davis and Carl Drew, and that plea was fulfilled. She got her wish to do a separate trial. Her lawyer decided to go a different route with this. He decided to use a defense called the Patty Hearst defense. This meant that, quote, he would not contend that she had been under the control of a more powerful personality and could not be held responsible for what she did at the time of the Marsden killing, end quote. Meaning she was under the control of Carl Drew. He was this big personality. He was this, you know, big guy. She was intimidated by him. And because of that, she you know, felt influenced basically to murder Karen Marsden. The night before Andy Maltese's trial for the murder of Barbara Raposa, a deal was struck on behalf of Robin Murphy. Robin would testify on the murder of Barbara Raposa and be expected to testify also for the Doreen and Karen trials as well. In exchange for her testimony, she would be granted immunity for the Barbara Raposa and Doreen Levesque killings, and she would plead guilty in Karen Marsden's case and then face second-degree murder charges. That was a more reduced charge than what she had originally been facing for first-degree murder. In the state of Massachusetts, a first-degree murder sentence is life in prison, while a second-degree prison sentence is life in prison, but with the possibility of parole. In Robin's case, she could appear before the parole board as soon as 15 years. The DAA also said that helping the state try the other men would help her case in front of the parole board. If she, so if she, basically, if she helped them by testifying, that would help her down the road. Basically, what this means and what you can take away from this is the state viewed Carl Drew as the big fish. They wanted to take the big fish down and felt okay with letting the littler fish, Robin Murphy, let her go off with a lighter sentence as long as she helped them, you know, snag the big fish. January 14th, Robin Murphy stood before a judge and listened as the judge read out a life in prison sentence for her role in the second degree murder charge of Karen Marsden. She didn't show a single thread of emotion, just stood there, relieved that she wouldn't at least have to stay in trial. Andy Maltese's trial began for the murder of Barbara Raposa. When he walked into the courtroom, he set a picture of Jesus Christ on the table and then he also set down a copy of the Bible. But the, the judge ordered it out of the courtroom before the jury walked in, you know, for obvious reasons. The trial lasted a week and a half. And based on the testimony he had given from his 
heavy air quotes, you know, psychic experience that he had when he wasn't really there, but, you know, he was there. As well as Robin Murphy's testimony against him, he was convicted of first-degree murder of Barbara Raposa. Carl Davis's trial was also separate from Carl uh, Drew, too many Carls, so they each had their own trial. Carl Drew's defense attorney, John A. Berkness, asked the court to move the trial from the Fall River, New Bedford area to Worcester County in Fitchburg, and that was located about 90 miles northwest of New Bedford. The reason he wanted this moved is he didn't think that Carl Drew would receive a fair trial in the Fall River, New Bedford area since that entire case was just so huge and so publicized and everyone knew about it or had already formulated an opinion. Okay, so sorry if the audio sounds different. I'm sure it does. I had like a weird audio glitch here, so I had to like turn something off and like plug in with something else. So sorry if the audio sounds completely different than what I've been doing before. I'm trying something new just so I can finish this ridiculously long episode. So Carl Drew's trial was moved to the Fitchburg area and the trial began on March 2nd, 1981. On March 13th, the jury found Carl Drew guilty of the first degree murder of Karen Marsden and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I know I included a trigger warning at the start of this, but I want to include one more now. I'm going to tell you the events leading up to Karen Marsden's death and her actual death. This is taken from the testimony of Carol Fletcher and Robin Murphy. Now, Karen Marsden had stopped working for Carl Drew, and this infuriated him. In his mind, she could not get away with it. He had to do something just out of revenge. February 8, 1980, Carol Fletcher was driving a yellow two-door 1978 Oldsmobile, and in the car was Carl Drew, Robin Murphy, and Karen Marsden. Carl told Robin to take Karen out of the car, to which she did. Robin then grabbed one of Karen's arms and then grabbed her hair and drug her out of the car. Carl Drew told Robin to hit her, which she did several times. Robin hit her and then held Karen in a chokehold until she was exhausted from the effort. Carl Drew told the rest of the group to pick up rocks. He told Carol Fletcher, Robin Murphy, and Carl Davis to throw the rocks at her, which they did, while Karen was moaning and still barely alive. They took off her rings and her jewelry from her. They took off her clothing except for her shirt. Carl Drew commanded Robin to go down on her, and then after she finished, he said, quote, you lezzies make me sick, end quote. Karen was still breathing reportedly at this time, according to Carol Fletcher. Carl Drew then gave Robin a knife and he told her to cut Karen's throat. Robin did, and then Karen breathed her last breath. Robin had cut her very deeply and there was not a lot of resistance when Carl Drew yanked off Karen's head and decapitated her. Carl Drew then told her to take out Karen's eyes. In another sick act, Carl Drew started kicking around Karen's head like a soccer ball. He went back to Karen's body, carved an X across her chest, and then started chanting seemingly in tongues, chanting and offering Karen's soul to Satan. He then put his thumb in Karen's blood and formed an X with the blood on Robin's forehead, stating, just like a movie, you're one of us now. 
before the group went walking back towards the car, leaving Karen to the elements. Paul Carey, one of the veteran detectives who had been looking into the Karen Marsden case, had been working on trying to exonerate Carl Drew, and he's still working on it. Paul Carey believes that Robin Murphy was the mastermind and that she was the one who orchestrated the three murders and let Carl Drew take the fall. He also believes that Robin was the real cult leader, not Carl Drew. Paul Carey said in a statement, quote, This was a vicious, hideous crime. Of all the murder cases I investigated during my 25 years with the force, I never had such a sour taste in my mouth like I did with this one. Something in my heart makes me know Drew is innocent, end quote. But while Paul Carey is sure that he's innocent, the other detective under him, Alan Sylvia, is not. Alan said, quote, These are dangerous people who are in prison for a reason. Everything in our investigation pointed to these two people. They are being justly incarcerated, end quote. She also said in another quote, quote, my big concern is about Robin Murphy. She is the most dangerous person I've ever known. She has made threats of rehabilitation against us. And to be honest, I think if she is paroled, we should be notified. This was the most strangest, most bizarre case I ever had the opportunity to work on. And I never want to do it again, end quote. Carl Drew is still actively working on getting out and he still claims that Robin framed him. Time will tell if he will ever get a new trial or ever get his conviction thrown out if they can provide new evidence. I guess we're going to see. What do you think? Do you think Carl Drew was the mastermind behind this or do you think the unsuspecting Robin Murphy was? Now, after the trial, Robin Murphy has proved to be a headache to the justice system as well as to the victim's family. She's recanted her story, then unrecanted it, and then recanted it again and again so many times, it's hard for me to dissect where we stand today. She said that when she agreed to the plea deal, she didn't know that she could spend her whole life in prison. She just thought she would spend 15 years. So it came as a shock to her, and then she decided to fight against it. Robin Murphy had a parole hearing on May 2nd, 1995, where she recanted her testimony that she participated in or even witnessed the murder of Karen Marsden. Despite many people putting her at the scene, and she herself knowing many intimate details that the public didn't know. Her parole was denied. Her view was set for 1998, and that year her parole was again denied, and they questioned her credibility. A review was set up for 2002. Her third parole hearing in 2002 ended up being denied again, and also that year she filed to have her guilty plea withdrawn, and she filed a motion for a new trial, which was also denied. In 2004, for her fourth parole hearing, the board voted to parole her to a long-term residential program. The board said in a statement, quote, Although the board does not believe Ms. Murphy's account of the governing offenses, the majority of the board believes she has rehabilitated to the point where she can return to the community, end quote. While she was out on parole, Karen attended meetings with her counselor and even got a job which she maintained for getting in trouble again. She got in trouble with riding with a known felon, which went against her parole. She received a warning the first time, but then she did it again a second time, leading to her re-imprisonment in August 15, 2011. She went before the review board in 2017 for another hearing, and at this time she was 54 years old. That parole was denied, and in another five years from 2017, which just so happens to be 2022, she gets another parole hearing. So I guess we're going to see what this next parole hearing decides. Unfortunately, this case does not have like a little bow tied on it and filed away the end. There are still more parole hearings happening for Robin Murphy and more things coming out for Carl Drew. 
Sadly, Doreen Levesque never got justice to this day. She had not had a trial, and no one has been held accountable for her murder. I suppose the state feels that they have the ones responsible behind bars, so no need to try for another murder. But it still makes me sad for Doreen's family and loved ones who don't get to see their loved one get the justice that she deserves. The charges that had been filed against Carl, Drew, and Willie were quietly dropped with no plans to reopen the charges against or for against them for Doreen Levesque. Carl Drew and Robin Murphy aren't the only ones recanting their statements. Other witnesses are as well. Carol Fletcher recanted her statement and now claims that Karen Marson's murder didn't even happen in the place that she originally said it did. All that being said, this case kind of leaves just a, well, what do you think happened? I don't know. What do you think happened? Taste in everyone's mouth. There's nothing that we're sure of, nothing that we're dead set against. And it's kind of frustrating. And if it's frustrating for us, I can't imagine how it feels for the victim's families. You know, rest in peace, Doreen Levesque. Rest in peace, Barbara Raposa. Rest in peace, Karen Marsden. And my heart goes out to them and to the way they were taken advantage of and also goes out to their families, you know, their children who are left without their their mother, their, their fathers and mothers who are left without their daughter. It's just a very sad case all around. And it's a very heavy case. Like we're at an hour and like 16 minutes right now. And I just kind of am leaving this episode feeling, you know, what more could have been done? What could we do? What can we do to help this situation? But that is all that I have for the episode today. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I'm sorry for like the weird audio that came the last five minutes. I need a new computer. (laughs) That's what it all boils down to. I just need a new computer. Then I won't have to deal with this weird stuff anymore that this old computer keeps spewing my way, making my life difficult. Again, I wanted to mention that the next three Patreons to join, the next three people to join the Patreon will be receiving a free t-shirt from me. So go ahead and do that and then send me an email. The email is going to be in the show notes, but in case you can't find the show notes, it's IamAddictedToCrime at gmail.com. And that's not I am addicted to crime. It's I am, the letter M, addicted to crime at gmail.com. All right, if you do that, you have the chance of getting a free t-shirt, and not only that, you're supporting the show, getting free episodes, and helping me uh, achieve my dreams, and also help me possibly get a new laptop so that I won't have to deal with audio issues. Again, thank you for listening. We have reached the one-year anniversary of this podcast, and a year ago last year, I was hitting, you know, submit, and it was so scary, and I didn't know if it would be the right move. But I've met so many people along the way. I've learned so many new things. I've, I feel like I'm making friends. I feel like I'm making somewhat of a difference in the true crime world. And that's all we can ask for. That's really all we can ask for. I'm having a great time. I hope you're enjoying episodes. And I just hope that this next year brings more growth for me personally as a host. Uh, I hope I can produce even more quality content in this next year. And I hope I can make a difference in the lives of you guys listening and the lives of those who need justice. All right, guys, that's it for today. I will see you next time. Stay safe. Goodbye.